Welcome again to Alien Beer, a podcast where I read you my stories. This week's story is A Bone to Pick. It's a story I wrote in 2011, vaguely based on real events, from my years as a ghost hunter. Of course, the tale was told to me by a real-life version of Dee Dee from her perspective, but I couldn't help but wonder, what was it like on the other side of the story? A Bone to Pick. I should have listened to the others. They warned me about taunting the living. Now I've got to bear this new indignity. Old Bess was right. It's worse because I brought it on myself. Old Bess is this older soul. You can tell by her lazy, sleepy speech. Most of us here just want to sleep. Some of us can, some of us can't. Old Bess can't. She's been here at least a hundred years, maybe more. Since no one remembers the time when she wasn't awake, she's probably the oldest of those still hanging on. She's as batty as everyone else, of course. That's why we came to this place, and how we came to be laid in this patch of earth. I look up to her. I do. She often treats me like I'm her slow niece, but I don't mind. Anyone who could hold together like old Bess has, after all this time, is someone to be reckoned with. I just get bored, you know, and I don't want to go back to the dark place in my thoughts where I thought where I go round and round, gnawing at myself over a past that doesn't matter to anyone anymore. Anyone but me, that is. So when those fleshies came along, I should have played dead. Stayed quiet. Old Bess calls them corporeals. She goes in for three-dollar words like that. Not me. I keep it simple, I say. Keep it simple, I say. Anyway, the fleshies came round one night, a whole pack of them, like an aimless tour group. They had a leader, a chunky woman with long hair, rosy cheeks, and a lot of Indian jewelry. I sat cross-legged and watched, invisible to them, from the sunken patch of ground I call home. One or two of them tripped in the gopher holes that plagued our grassy community. No one kept the grounds up anymore. It had been decades since we even had proper markers. The markers move across the street, but they didn't move us. The leader herded everyone in a circle. I watched, amused. It might have been a pauper's funeral with all the dungarees and black undershirts they wore. At the same time, the gear these outlandish folks carried made me think of something from a science fiction movie I'd seen at the drive-in once. Some had tiny spotlights on their hats. Many had strange-looking cameras. Others held little metallic sticks, each with its own tiny red light. Other plastic boxes beeped and flashed. One fellow even set up a box on a tripod that might have been a tiny toy movie camera. The woman shushed them, pushing her hands down at her sides. She smiled and spoke loud enough to startle me. Hello, my name is Dee Dee. Is there anyone here who'd like to speak with us tonight? There was a long silence, and not one of her fleshy friends answered her. It took a minute to dawn on me that they were here to talk to us. I started to answer, just to see what they'd do, but she moved on to another question. What year is it, she shouted in a voice that would do a carnival barker proud. I'm dead, not deaf. I jumped in with an answer, shouting back at her, Get a calendar! She didn't react. To my surprise, disappointment rippled through me. If someone here was asking questions, you'd think they'd have a way to hear answers. She continued, Were you a patient here? And any fool would know the answer to these questions. Back when the hospital still operated, the staff buried dead patients here, not other staff. If you can hear me, please talk into one of these recording devices. See? The ones with the little red lights on them. They won't hurt you. 
Aha, so maybe they could hear me. I moved close to a blonde teenage girl who held one of the sticks. Numbers changed rapidly on a tiny glowing screen. I didn't see where to speak, so I just moved close. Go away, I shouted. I couldn't help it. I laughed. Still, no one reacted. I grew more impatient, bothering me this late with questions I couldn't even answer. A tall fellow stood behind into one side of the teen girl, one hand on her shoulder. With his other hand, he waved a plastic box in the air like a Geiger detector. I tried to swat it out of his hand. I didn't connect with it, of course, but when my hand passed through, lights on the box beeped and let out an awful squeal. His face lit up with excitement, and several people near him broke their places in the circle to take his picture or wave other boxes near him. I laughed at the fleshies and made other boxes flash and light up. I knew old Bess wouldn't approve, and I'd get an earful later, but I hadn't had this much fun in years. Since I don't like sharing body space with fleshies, I backed out of the clump of silly people and watched them from my grave a few yards away. A few, after a while, the night air chilled my uninvited visitors. Since the boxes didn't flash again, they got bored and yammered to each other. Dee Dee announced to the air and anyone listening that they'd be leaving soon. She led them in a prayer of sorts, something about visualizing a cocoon of white light surrounding them, protecting them from any spirits that might try to follow them home. I chuckled and wished for a prayer to protect me from them. After that, old Bess wouldn't speak to me. I heard her talking to some of the others, whispering that I'd seen started something I couldn't finish. When I objected, she just gave me the cold shoulder. I thought that night would be the end of it, but I was wrong. That bunch of fleshies kept on coming back to talk to the air, begging for one of us to make their boxes flash and beep. Dee Dee was always there, though the other faces changed a bit. It wouldn't have been so awful for me, since I'm awake a lot of the time anyway, but some of the others started to complain about the noise and commotion. Soon, none of my cemetery's other residents would speak to me. I was filled with such loneliness that I looked forward to the pesky fleshies visiting. At least they talked to me. One night, Dee Dee arrived with her bunch, and they performed their usual, though I'd stopped trying to stir them up. In the middle of the one-sided conversation, Dee Dee stared at my grave and bent down. A gopher had been visiting lately, and freshly turned earth made a small lump in the long depression over my remains. Dee Dee gasped and picked something up off the ground. Guys, look! I think this is bone! I felt sick. This woman held one of my knuckles, it looked like. I don't like being reminded of the state of my body, what's left of it. I yelled at her to put my bone down, but he, she just showed it around. Some of the fleshies recoiled from her in disgust. Others stared wide-eyed with fascination. They came here to talk to the dead. Don't they understand what death means? Someone asked her what she intended to do with the bone. Well, keep it, of course. I think it's cool, replied Dee Dee. Ugh, leave it here, Dee Dee. Would you want someone taking your bones after you die? I don't care what happens to me after I die, said Dee Dee. If they want to make a necklace from my vertebrae, more power to them. She wrapped my knuckle bone in tissue and stuck it in her shirt pocket, ignoring further arguments. They said their usual prayer soon after that. But a funny thing happened. I could see white light around her, and I could feel it around me, too. When she walked away, I was pulled along behind her like a, chi a child's toy balloon. Oh, no. I strained and fought, desperate to break her hold on me. I tried to dig in my heels. I scrambled and grabbed at trees and brush as she walked. walked. Nothing worked. 
I shouted in her ear, but she only flicked her hand in my general direction, as if to shoe a net. Looking, looking back, I watched my graveyard disappear as she rounded a corner of a dilapidated old building. The loss of my home stabbed like an icicle through my heart. The fleshy's cars sat parked along the broken pavement in front of the building, and they all said goodbyes and drove off. Dee Dee waited to leave the hospital grounds after the others. She slipped behind the wheel of her little red car, and the force that connected me drew me in alongside her. Situated in the passenger seat, I watched as she pulled out onto the orange-lit city, city streets. I looked at the dashboard, confounded by an array of Buck Rogers stuff, lights and changing numbers. A talking box announced turn-by-turn directions. She talked on what had to be a handheld phone to someone, saying she'd be home soon. Panic rose in me as it used to do in life, like when they put me in that place after my Henry was killed in Korea. I knew I was lost, more lost than I'd been after the army delivered that terrible news, even more lost than I'd felt since I'd been put in the ground. In the forgotten cemetery, everything made some kind of sense. I knew all the people, and I knew my place. The spot, only marked with a depression in the turf, still served me as a home of sorts. Hysteria blurred everything into a white haze as my mind churned and roiled with worry and fear. Straps that once bound me to the wall of the tunnel tugged at my limbs. The hot, dry tunnel underground, dark, full of the screams and moans of others. All of us too wild with the beasts in our head to see the light of day. Down to where I became sick, sicker, sick in my body, not in my head, not only in my head. No, not that place. Stop, stop, stop! The car slowed and turned. I drifted, gone wherever I go to where the madness makes me dissolve. I made an effort to condense into a form so I could swallow the bile of the dark place back into the past, back into memory. As I came together, a garage door opened by itself in front of Dee Dee's car. She pulled the car in and shut it off. With a click, she released a strap that she'd had across her lap and over her shoulder and stepped out of the car. She opened the door of the garage into her house and let herself in. The damned invisible leash that bound me to her dragged me along behind. Someone had left lights on in the house for her. Dee Dee found a man, probably her husband, already in the bedroom, snoring like a bear, like my Henry used to so long ago. Dee Dee stripped off her clothes and slipped into a frumpy nightgown that was covered in demented grinning jack-o'-lanterns. She started to get into bed, but stopped and went back to dig through the pockets of the clothes she'd just removed. She came up with a wad of tissue in her hand and snuck a peek at my bone. She looked like the cat that ate the canary. She wrapped it back up and then frowned as she looked around her bedroom. She opened her closet and dug out a shoebox full of knickknacks. Old key rings, hair accessories, and some chunky bracelets became my remains new roommates. I decided I hated Dee Dee. As Dee Dee slipped under the covers and spooned up behind her husband, I paced the room, feeling every bit a prisoner. Dee Dee soon joined a chorus with her husband snoring. I tested the limits of my tether and found that I could not leave the house other than to enter the garage. If I even attempted to go outside, I began to dissolve into a wild panic and lost any semblance of form. I might have become desperate enough to keep going in the future, but 
since I felt that would be the end of me, I decided to hold that option in reserve. I discovered that Dee Dee also had a young son and two large dogs. The boy was asleep in his race car bed. The dog slept in cages in the living room. I watched the family sleep a while, then began working on a plan of escape. The dogs twitched and whined if I passed a hand through them. I picked on one until he woke. The dog growled and barked so loud that I fled the room in a gibbering panic. I forced myself to calm down and move back into the room, causing a new barrage of barks, as both dogs were now awake. I think their senses made them aware of me in a, some small way, because their barking grew wilder as I approached, wincing and twitching with each noise they made. I kept agitating them until Dee Dee rose from her bed to shout at them. She begged them to calm down and go back to sleep. They did calm as she entered the room, but whined and looked from her to the spot where I stood. I left the room and let the dogs go quiet. I waited until I heard Dee Dee snoring again, then woke the dogs and got them barking again. I repeated this several times before the sun rose. Dee Dee's husband, who turned out to be named Jim, tried to rouse her. She just snapped at him, complaining that the dogs kept her up all night. He stomped out of the room in a bathrobe and went to, to let the dogs out. I began to tire, and since it's harder to hold a form in the daytime, I let myself dissipate for the oblivion that passes for sleep in my afterlife. Each night after that, I found new ways to annoy and perturb Dee Dee and her family. I found that I could make some of the stranger electrical devices malfunction. In the bedroom, Dee Dee had a clock with numbers made of green electric lights and a radio built in. If I concentrated hard enough, I found I could make the radio play or the numbers change on the face. This was great fun until Dee Dee pulled the plug from the wall and threw the clock across the room. In the living room, a large blank portrait hung from the wall. I worked at it and found that it was a gigantic television, though I couldn't imagine where the tubes fit or how they could be changed if one burned out. With an effort of will, I could make it spring to life, waking the whole household. Days went by and I grew stronger. It took what seemed like hours to focus my anger enough, but I could push small objects tipping over glasses on the edge of the countertop to shatter on the floor. I made pictures on the wall fall to the floor, cracking the glass in their frames. I nudged some of the electric toys in the boy's room and was pleased when I got a fire engine to drive around the floor, lights whirling and silent, siren blaring. No therapy in life ever felt this good. Dee Dee and Jim grew frustrated from lack of sleep and began arguing on a daily basis. The boy cried, and I felt awful about that, but I had to keep up my campaign until Dee Dee got the point. One night, after a particularly nasty fight with Dee Dee, Jim took the boy and the dogs out somewhere. She sat alone in the house, shaking with anger and exhaustion. She watched the giant portrait television on the wall and began to relax. I flicked it off. That's it, she cried. She threw off blankets and sprang to her feet. She stomped across the house and into the bedroom. She pulled out the tissue box and my, my knuckle bone. Is this what you want? Fine, you win. She threw on a coat over her pajamas and put her feet into plastic sandals. She slammed the door behind her as she stormed out into the garage. Her car scraped the bottom of the rising garage door as she backed out in a hurry. Once again, the supernatural tether swept me along as she drove along the streets, back to the hospital grounds where my cemetery lies. She found my grave somehow and placed my bone into an open gopher hole and kicked dirt over it. Are you happy now? She cried to the night air, and her shout echoed off the crumbling wall building's wall.
I watched as Dee stomped back to her car, rather pleased with myself. I didn't even mind as old Bess lectured me, saying she told me so. I tuned her out and settled at last into a long, deep sleep. If you enjoy my writing, please check out my website, sillyhatbooks.com, where I have links to my books on Amazon in Kindle format, in paperback format, and some are in audiobook format as well. I would also like to give a shout out to my friends Leslie Tash and Katina French. Katina has a podcast of her own entitled The Bradbury Experiment, in which she writes a story every week and uh, puts it on podcasts much like I'm doing here. Leslie is the author of a series of books that I love called Troll or Derby and Troll or Park, both about a fairy roller derby girl. They are delightful. Anyway, I'm Chrissy Garrison. Thank you for listening to my podcast.